Hey everyone, Jarrett Fuller here with the second episode in our summer of reruns. Today we are rebroadcasting my 2017 interview with Ellen Lupton, the designer, curator, writer, and teacher who likely needs no introduction for listeners of this show, uh, other than the fact that Ellen also happened to be my thesis advisor when I was in graduate school. I always assume this is common knowledge, but I still meet people who listen to the show who are surprised to learn that Scratching the Surface began as a part of my thesis work while I was getting my MFA at the Maryland Institute College of Art, where Ellen was the co-director of the graduate graphic design program. When I decided to go back to school back in, I guess this was 2014, 2015, uh, I knew I, I had been working as a designer for a few years, and I knew that I wanted to move my work out of a strictly commercial practice and move into writing, criticism, teaching. I was accepted into a few programs, but decided to go to MICA largely because of Ellen, honestly. She was doing the type of work that I wanted to do, and I felt like I could just learn so much from being around her and learning about how she thinks about her work. And so I did. It was an honor to spend two years studying with her and everybody at MICA. Her influence is all over the early episodes of this show, and much of the work I've done since. She continues to be a model for me, and especially now that I'm in academia full-time, I find myself thinking back to things I picked up from my time at MICA that I'm reworking in my own classrooms. The way she organized the class, the way she facilitated discussion, I see that influence in how I teach now. I'm not sure this show would exist without her early guidance and support, and I am forever grateful. So here's the conversation we had back in 2017, right after I graduated uh, with my MFA and sort of this this podcast transition from being a thesis project to being a real show out in the world. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I'm talking to Ellen Lupton, and it is the final episode in my June series interviewing the professors from MICA who have advised this thesis project. Ellen, of course, for designers, likely needs no introduction. She's a director of MICA's graduate graphic design program and the senior curator of contemporary design at Cooper Hewitt. She's also the author of some of the classic design books like Thinking with Type and Type on Screen and co-author of the excellent graphic design The New Basics with Jennifer Cole Phillips. For the last two years, Ellen has been my professor and advised my thesis project and this podcast, so a few days after graduation, I finally sit down with her to talk about her own work as a designer and writer and teacher and curator, how the design industry and discourse has changed over the course of her career, and how she thinks about her audience and writing for design in a way that's accessible and clear without oversimplifying it. Uh, when I decided I wanted to go to graduate school a few years ago, I had applied to a couple schools I was interested in and honestly wasn't sure where I wanted to go until I had a Skype interview with Ellen where I felt like she immediately got what I was interested in and why I wanted to go back to school and when I hung up from that call, I knew that Micah was where I wanted to study. And I think I definitely made the right choice. Two years later, this experience has been everything that I wanted it to be. 
I was given tools to think about the intersection of design criticism and practice in my own career. I got to meet some incredibly talented students. And as you saw over the last few weeks, study with some, some very smart professors. And perhaps most importantly, I got to make a podcast for my thesis. And it's turned into this project that will continue past my graduation. And I'm just so thankful for everyone at MICA for the platform to start this. And I'm really excited to see where it goes next. It's so fun to get to talk to people who are doing the kind of work I'm interested in. And Ellen obviously very much fits that. And so I hope that you enjoy my conversation with the great Ellen Lupton. The one part that I do just kind of want to start with your background just to kind of set the stage for this other thing, these other questions that I have is what came first for you? Was it, did you, when you were, you know, in school, did you see yourself as a designer first or a writer first? Or how did those things come together? Sure. So I went to Cooper Union, which is an art school. And yeah. I went there to become an artist. Okay. And then I discovered design, which I didn't know about. Yeah. And as I discovered design, I discovered this linkage between design and writing. And that to me was the revolution. That the typography in particular was this link between writing and visual art. And I come from a family that's all English professors. Oh, okay. Okay. And I have a sister who's a very, very gifted scholar of English okay. literature who's my identical twin sister. And we kind right. of made a deal in high school that she was the writer and the scholar and I was the artist. Okay. And that was cool because I was a terrible student and she was like 4.0, yeah. whatever. I yeah. was like not a good student in high school. And that, so that seemed like a fair deal. Mm -hmm. But I was a good writer too. And somehow I got, I wasn't allowed to do that. And when yeah. I discovered typography, it was suddenly a way for me to take charge of the thing that I wasn't supposed to be doing. Right. And in fact, to take charge of the very content that she was exposing me to, which was critical theory. Right. So she was at Hopkins, you know, and that was where yeah. like Jacques Derrida was first published in the U.S. And it was like the hotbed of... Yeah this okay, literary makes... criticism and so she was exposing me to that and I was finding that a lot of that philosophy and critical thinking was related to architecture and the page yeah. and the word and the space between letters yeah. and and that to me that was it That's, yeah it, they came together We're, uh, I, I just have one other question that actually like kind of explains a lot of the mm. work that you've done since then in a lot of ways but I'm interested you know at Cooper Union and I talked to Abbott already and I'm not sure the order of when these will come mm -hmm. out if his will come out first or not but was that kind of connection something that a lot of people were thinking about at the time or what was the the design that was not not a lot of people in my circle were doing that so Abbott and I were doing it, and I kind of brought to our relationship the critical theory and yeah. philosophy and 
I was sort of channeling that through right. my sister and all her, yeah, all that she had access as like a professional in that area. And he was much more attuned to like what was happening in the art world and what okay. was happening yeah. in architecture. And together we, we as students at Cooper, so that exploded for us. And we kind of brought that together as a team. Yeah. yeah. And then so what, what's always been interesting to me about your work and your whole career is that those that kind of very academic side and the critical theory side and the philosophy side has always been very much connected to making things. Mm -hmm. um, and as I've, you know, as I've been here for the last two years and have been reading a lot of design history that I hadn't come across before and finding all these obscure things that you had written in academic journals and things that I had never come across before. And so I, I'm interested in the evolution of your writing uh, from something that's very academic to something that definitely appeals to a much more general audience. And I don't mean that judgmentally oh, at, all. at all. No, I'm I actually think that's a really that. good thing. Yeah, well, so a lot of the, those critical writers, you know, I'm thinking especially of Foucault yeah. and Barth and Baudrillard and Lyotard, they yeah. wrote in an kind of obscure yeah. manner, which was the fashion. But they were read by a very wide audience, you know, especially Roland Barthes. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, he wrote for the newspaper. Yeah. So their work wasn't strictly academic. It was like reaching out beyond that yeah. to be what was called a public intellectual. Right. And so that's really interesting to me. Okay. And but so when I was first starting to write, I, I really wanted to write like an academic because that was modeled for me by my yeah. heroes, including my PhD mother and my PhD sister. And this is they they modeled a kind of professional writing, mm -hmm. but also opened me to this um, more critical, open view of what writing can okay. be. Um. So yeah, I kind of learned how to write academically, but I always wanted it to not be obscure. I always wanted people to understand it. And so the yeah. more I learned how to write, the more I became conscious of being more clear and more direct. So that was always something that you were interested in, was kind of making it something that was accessible I to always, as wide an audience as possible. I always wanted to be accessible. Okay. Even though early on I did more kind of footnoted, I was yeah. in an art history PhD program for a yeah. while. I really had to write academic things, and and I love that. I read, I still yeah. read a lot of academic writing. I respect okay. it a lot. So I, but n now I'm really committed to writing in the clearest way possible, and that's become you know a philosophy of mine. Yeah. Do you? I'm 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 curious about I have this is a kind of two-part question. I'm curious of when you're writing who your imagined readers are and then the second part is who are the people that buy your books? And the reason I, I the reason I asked that is that I found in doing these interviews the people who seem to listen to this the most are people who are involved in education, whether it's students or professors. People who are in academia yeah and you know there are a lot of professional 
people listening also, but I find it interesting that still that's kind of the audience. And I'm curious if yeah, that's I mean, just kind so of So a, a lot general... of my books are really written for emerging designers, which okay. are students or young designers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in the digital design realm who don't necessarily have the same formal education. Oh. So there's young people for books like Thinking on Type and Type on Screen and Graphic Design Thinking yeah. and The New Basics. These are yeah. not written for Polish Air. Right. They're written for people who want to get better at doing design. But then my museum books are, you know, for, I'd say, a more intellectually elite. Okay. But they sell a lot small, fewer number of copies, too. So the museum books are more traditional, scholarly, yeah, and luscious. They're not handbooks. Oh. They're more, you know, they're museum yeah, books yeah, that have yeah. to be kind of um, elegant and formal and serious. I hadn't thought about this actually before, and so this is a question that I wasn't planning on on asking, but. You know, you say you're not writing, you know, this is not a book that's for Paula Cher or something like that. What what are the types of books that somebody like that or even, I mean, I guess you, you know, who who's writing the books that are oh, for somebody like you? Oh, the books that I read? Well, yeah. I just got this book, um, Fire Signs, A Semiotic Theory for Graphic Design. Oh. I've never heard and of this. And I don't know. Is this new? Yeah, it just came out, so I got this from our library. Um, I just read an incredible book by Mark Wigley and Beatrice Coleman. Are We Human? Are We Human? I just read it, too. Oh, I mean, that's fantastic. That's so and that good. is incredible writing. Yeah. And it is scholarly. It has yeah. footnotes in the back, and it's all very professional. And I believe in that. I do footnote my work or yeah. include yeah. sources in some kind oh, of system. I love system. that book so much. But that's a great book. So I read a lot of stuff like that that is um, high level for people okay. in the profession. Do, do you see – this is another question that I wasn't planning on asking you, but it's kind of connecting these mm-hmm. last two questions. Do you see part of your job as, as a writer, as a curator, and as an educator to take – that kind of high theory that's impenetrable in a lot of ways and kind of remold it or, you know, communicate it yeah, in ways. I mean, that's what scholarship is, is that it draws on other writing. Yeah. And that as a curator, you need to be attending to what are designers doing in the field. Yeah. But also what is the conversation, like what's going on and how to bring those things together mm-hmm. into a story told through artifacts, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so you might be reading scientific things as well as right. philosophy and design criticism, design journalism. And so you're, you're not making something out of nothing. Right. And, you know, right. most writers are making something out of the stew of the contemporary yeah, moment. Yeah, I always think of like, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell gets a bad rap for oversimplifying his story, you know, taking a lot of science things and, and simplifying them down. And I read an interview with him once where he just kind of said, you know, the scientist who did that study is not the audience for my books. And I actually think there's something nice about that idea of true. taking the stuff and giving it to another audience who otherwise wouldn't have seen it. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of exactly. what a lot of your books are Exactly. Like. I want designers to care about critical theory. Yeah. 
and about you know neuroscience or yeah. gestalt psychology you know all these topics that relate to design mm -hmm. but need to be translated and made relevant and made right. into a story right. that we can all get you know? so how does that the, the work of yours that i know the least amount is cooper hewitt and, mm -hmm. and your curatorial work and I've, I've seen your shows and i know kind of the end product but i don't know kind of your process there or, or what even your goals for you know kind of staging an exhibition mm -hmm. are and so I kind of have just those same questions I just asked you but right. in a museum context like who who are you expecting to come see well, a in show? Well in a museum you have a very very broad audience so unlike somebody buying thinking with type where I have a pretty clear idea Right. What someone needs from right. a book with that title. And a museum, people are coming to be entertained. Mm -hmm. They're coming as journalists themselves or as expert audiences who want to be surprised and want to learn something new. They're yeah. coming as the, um, the, the companion of somebody who has a professional interest. Right. And they're patiently... Right. Um, standing there and sometimes I put something in that I know is for the guy yeah, who's yeah. there with someone who yeah, yeah. came to see the ball gown right and this person might that's always that. my girlfriend when I bring her to all the design shows that she doesn't care about um so who how do you, I don't know I don't know exactly how to ask this but how do you how do you kind of like think about collecting objects that will appeal appeal to people at that whole level you know how do you kind of bring those together so it's not dumbed down for the well it's almost not it's not the objects but what you say about them oh so you so the objects should should be have some interest to everyone yeah. but how do you present them how do you interpret them how much depth mm -hmm. do you support them with because um, some people want to read a lot, yeah, and they want to know a lot of detail, and some people just really want to have a good experience that is intuitive just from walking through a space, right? And so, just it's a lot like writing a book, but you're you're creating something where you know that no one's going to look at every single thing, yeah. And how are you going to make choices that help people? How how do I mean I I've watched you over the last two years and and how you kind of have this schedule of kind of when you're teaching and when you're writing and when you're doing museum things and they're you know these kind of designated times but I'm interested in how those actually overlap and relate to each other um, you know does how does a show that you're working on filter into things that you're well, teaching. it totally relates. And so as a teacher, I always think that's where I get my ideas. From teaching. It's from teaching yeah. and from being around young people who are making things and doing courses like the theory class yeah. or my design history class yeah. where I have to constantly be delivering uh, an accessible story Right. About the avant-garde, about experience design, about neuroscience. Right, right, right. And that by 
by engaging with that at the level of a college teacher allows me to then really bring that into my curating in yeah. a way that if I were only studying like objects and the right. origins of objects, as many curators have to because yeah. that's what their goal, mission is. Um, so to me, they really connect. And now I'm doing a book with Cooper Hewitt on storytelling. Oh, right. That Cooper Hewitt's publishing that comes completely out of my teaching mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. My, my belief yeah, yeah. that designers have to deliver an experience to people. I, I have another re- weird question, and, and I'm sorry that I keep asking you these questions that I had not planned, but you're, you're actually like bringing up a lot of things that I had not thought about before. When you're at like the, the very, very origins of curating a show, um, is it is it an object that comes first? Like, do you see something in the collection and think we're building something on this? Or is there like an idea uh, or a theory? My shows all start from an idea. Okay. I'm really not an object person. Okay. I love that was collaborating my with people who are yeah. more so. So I've been doing shows with a younger curator at Cooper Hewitt, Andrea Lips. Oh, yeah. So we did the beauty show right. together, and now she's collaborating with me on a show called The Senses. Oh, Okay. And um, I love working with her because she brings her eye that sometimes yeah. I feel I don't have. But all my shows start with an idea. Okay. And that may be unusual. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that Walter Benjamin show yeah. at yeah. the Jewish Museum, I love seeing that as an example of curating. And right. that came with the idea. Yeah. Yeah. What if we took the Boulevard project mm-hmm. and found examples of contemporary art? That reflected those themes. Yeah. And then you fill in the blank. Yeah. So I, I love that. I think it's very brainy and that's how I like to work. But different curators have very different uh, impetus behind their work. How how long I have another two part question. How long are you kind of thinking about an idea or a subject or a, a thing before it starts to turn into something? And then how do you know if it's, oh, this is a book, or this is a lecture, or this is a exhibition? You know, do well, you think the, about it yeah, in those terms? The lectures usually come first. Okay. Uh, and then they become, the, and it might be a lecture at MICA for our students, yeah. or it might be okay. a public lecture. But the lectures are the, the, um, the kitchen for me. Mm. I mean, it's a huge part of my practice. Yeah. Um, I, lo- I love studying the performance aspect, yeah, right. but also the content. Right. And that's where, that's where it all starts for me. And then I write and okay. do other things based on that. But the, the lectures are where I test it and discover. And then, so, so do, are there times where things will like, you know, split off and it's like, oh, this is just a, a book. Yeah. Know, or, or, oh, this is, this is going to be a show. Oh, yeah, yeah that's, okay. that's the key. So I started working on this storytelling project, mm-hmm. and I realized that the most interesting part of it to me was the part about multisensory design. And uh, so now that's a separate project. Oh, but those were originally and it's, Yeah, it's still thing. a chapter yeah. in the storytelling book. Oh, interesting. But it's the basis of this much bigger, huge yeah. exhibition at Cooper Hewitt with its own book that's more... Sciency and mm-hmm, serious, mm-hmm. whereas my storytelling book is very um, 
how to right. and very uh, fun and okay. kind of humorous. I have I have one more question, kind of just about you and your career, mm-hmm. and then I want to step back and just talk about the profession at large for a little bit sure. to kind of wrap things up. But something that's been very amazing to me watching you is how, in all of your roles, you have to have your finger on the pulse of kind of the design zeitgeist at the moment, and you seem to do a good job at that. You know, whether it's a show and you're kind of pulling these obscure designers from around the world or in a lecture to students Mm -hmm. and you're connecting something from history to something that a designer did, you know, last week. How, like, what's your media diet like? Or how do you kind of consume these things to make sure that you're kind of staying current? Well, I never feel like I'm current enough. Really? It's very challenging. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of blogs that uh, push oh, you know, newsletters yeah, yeah. like Dezine and oh, yeah. Core 77 and yeah. AIGAI on oh, yeah. design I really like. Um, it's nice that. Yeah. And I don't throw them away. I look at them every day. And that really helps. Um, I go to museums, but that's slow. You know, yeah. And there's shows all over the world. I can't... <coughs> go to them all yeah. and all the fairs. I can't afford that. People think, oh, curators are on airplanes all the time going right. to the art shows. Yeah. Like the now, maybe the museum director yeah. is doing that, but the curators, we have no money. Yeah. So we're absorbing it through, um, through the media. And then how do you, because I feel like I... I try to do that also. You know, I subscribe to, you know, 50 blogs or whatever. I get all the newsletters. I follow, you know, however, 100 people on Twitter so I can be someone that keeps up. But how do you, and this is a hard question, so I apologize, but how do you retain it? Or how do you, six months later, are working on something and are like, oh, I saw that thing on, it's nice that oh, six months Oh, I take notes. Ago. I take okay. obsessive notes. Okay. Um. There's no other way. If so, if I think something's important, I, you know, put it in a file. I use Google Docs, which okay, is actually yeah, yeah. kind of clumsy, but it works for me. I I take notes on everything I read. I take notes on every conversation. Okay. And it, you're foolish to think that you are going to remember yeah, anything yeah. if you don't write it down. And so by writing it down, then I can find it. And one of the things I'll do when I'm working on then writing is I'll mm-hmm. reread my notes on a topic. And it's just okay. amazing how much knowledge is in my notes. That's knowledge that I really worked on getting. Right. You know, that right? wasn't, so you weren't keeping in your head. Yeah, but, but that I worked to get. So I feel like I have yeah. legitimate yeah. to then write that's about it and cor- incorporate it, of course, with sources and all that. It's very important to keep track yeah. of where you find everything. But that's really fun to go through right. and read your notes and go, oh, that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then that, those notes feed into everything that you're doing. You know, those get added into a class talk. Or, oh, yeah. You know, it's They're... like, oh, this gets quoted in a book or. Yeah, and I, it's all on Google Docs so I can yeah. find it for yeah, any search topic. And... Yeah, but I that's... have, you know, okay. files on okay. topics that are important to me, but. It's all there, and yeah. it's great. Yeah. I, love, I love that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, people use Evernote. Yeah. But that I happen to use Google Docs, and it, I find it pretty, pretty effective. Okay. I want to step back and just, I have a couple questions, just kind of general questions about 
kind of the design industry, design mm-hmm. profession, design culture at large. Um, you know, and this podcast kind of like at its core is about design criticism. And that's kind of a loose word right. that I even feel like as I've been doing this, maybe doesn't always feel mm-hmm. right. Um, maybe design culture, design, design, discourse. design discourse has found, has seemed really much like more, the idea of discourse. more interested in, more related to what I'm interested in. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you was mm-hmm. how has the design discourse changed over the course of, of your career? So you mentioned kind of being in college and having that interest in critical theory and there wasn't a lot of people talking about it. And then I don't know why I'm answering this question for you. And then in the nineties, there was this kind of big interest in it for a while. And now, you know, the New York times publishes stories on, you know, Dubai having a new typeface or, you know, that a company like redesigns a logo. How, as somebody who's kind of worked through all of that, how have you, and have been a part of that discourse the whole time, how have you felt like it's changed? Um, yeah, well, it's gotten much broader. Yeah, so the 90s was really exciting with emigre yeah. and all the debates and arguments and a sense of tension and yeah. the whole designer as author. And right. All those things were very exciting to be part of and to participate in. And then the internet, all you know, that, that right. conversation sort of went away and the visuals that went with it sort of went out of fashion. Um. But now, yeah, it's become more of a public, you know, yeah. more accessible. The design field has expanded so much. The whole user experience and right. interaction design. It's like some of it I don't even know. Like, is that design? Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, what did you do? You made a a, a chart saying right, like, right. What you how users open an account? It just seems so like minute, and yet it's so necessary. It's yeah, so part of. Has that, has that kind of opening of the discourse changed your work or how you think about your work at all? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think one of the fundamental, you know, the whole notion of the experience economy yeah. is to me very important and a big part of my thinking about the 21st century. And what that is is really the notion that everything we encounter we encounter with over time right and i think design was always thought of as more of a thing yeah but when you consider that even a poster is perceived over time that your eyes are moving around oh right creating a kind of little movie of a poster you never take in the whole thing at once our vision is just in constant motion and so that element of time is very connected to digital media and yeah the way we actually interact with anything is temporal and experiential yeah do you does it change how you think about kind of what what you're going to write about or what kind of show you're going to put on because there's just this consciousness that people are just aware of it now Absolutely. So my storytelling book is really going to be a great book for people in user experience because it's oh, interesting. about yeah. this dimension of right. time and right. different models and paradigms. Is it a circle? Is it a triangle? Yeah. You know, is yeah, it a yeah. square? Yeah. <laughs> like, how are you going to diagram the yeah. experience of time 
in a project. Yeah. I think it's super interesting. That is, that's really and interesting. And it goes beyond design as like choosing fonts and right. more about this temporal experience. I like that a lot. And then my exhibition about the senses is called The Senses Design Beyond Vision. Uh, and it's yeah. about the haptic and the audio and right. the texture and the body. Right. And that really takes you beyond the static object and into an experience over time. Do you... I, I have two questions, again, and they're kind of related. Um, you talked about how exciting that the 90s were. Um, and I've talked about this with a lot of people, and I'm trying to be... And I've talked to a lot of immigre people, and, you know, I, I've... Anyone who has listened to a half dozen of these episodes has heard me say this, so, uh, you know, I'm, it's probably getting annoying, but I, I try really hard not to look at that era with, you know, kind of rose-tinted glasses as this kind of amazing time. It was, time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> do, do you think that's possible again, or do you think that type of really rich, deep discourse around graphic design is possible in 2017? Well, it's probably happening with digital media. You know, I feel yeah. like there was a lot maybe five years ago about the nature of publishing, right? Different models for how a publication That's true. could yeah. be organized. Yeah. It was the social book and the, yeah. um, the open book, right? And participatory yeah. media. I think it is. I think there yeah. is a really interesting. That's a good discourse. point because that's something that's actually come up a lot in a lot of the other interviews that I've done. That that you know. And we were just saying it. There's more people talking about design than ever before. The difference is that it's just scattered. You know, it's everywhere. There isn't a emigre or, you know, these kind of central places where people can go to, to kind of get that. What, I, I'm, I'm very curious. This is a question that I've asked everybody that I've talked to. Uh, what are the, the kind of issues or the topics or the subjects that you think are important for designers to be discussing or to be a part of the contemporary design discourse or contemporary design criticism? What are the things that are being overlooked right now that, that we should be talking about and well, writing about and thinking about? Well, I'm really interested in, in design for inclusion, mm -hmm. and that can mean for disabilities, it can mean yeah. socioeconomic, uh, globalism, yeah. Yeah. broader use of language yeah yeah so i think that's super interesting i think that book reuben pater's book yeah. the politics of design really gets at a pulse yeah of a different way of looking at design as not so eurocentric yeah so i think that's really important really interesting of course sustainability right. is extremely important and has so many uh implications for designers um Transparency, surveillance, yeah, all yeah, that yeah. I think is very important. Uh, the truth, the right. relationship that designers have to telling the truth, yeah, yeah, is of great urgency. There's so many things yeah. for us, yeah, to touch upon. Yeah, I feel like that's just been the the recurring theme. What what has ended up becoming the recurring theme of these interviews is that that the design discourse can't. As, as important as it is for us to be talking about colors and typography and layout, we can't end it there. We have no, to be talking about no. all that stuff behind it and, and in front of it, too. And often that's the stuff that, you know, kind of goes missing in the, in, the, in the discourse. 
my last question is, is hopefully an easy one, um, but I'm interested in who are the writers or designers or curators or even, you know, books that have really kind of influenced you and shaped how you think about all of these things or the people uh -huh. you keep turning back well, to. Well, Mark Wigley and Beatrice Colomina, who are my yeah. generation, yeah. continue and have for my whole career. I've always watched yeah, their I work. So they're top of my list of I, brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I, I love, you know, Ruben Pater's book mm -hmm. as, you know, and, and less in-depth but a really nice statement of what can be. Yeah. So they're kind of on two poles, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, what else? I, I'm a big fan of Johanna Drucker, who's also oh, yeah. my generation. Um, you know, Michael Rock, of yeah. course. I'm trying to think of people who are younger. Yeah, well, that was going to be, I was going to yeah. add so that. So Ruben Pater. Yeah. Uh, there isn't anyone yet. No one's no, doing I'm it. No, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. You know, but it takes time to, to yeah. get the voice. Right. You know. Yeah. And so I think. I mean, and it comes back to kind of what what we were just saying, where it's like, you know, you see something like, is that even designed? So much of of I, m my opinion is so much of some of the good design writing maybe wouldn't even seem like it's about design. You know, well, I think Rob, about... Rob Gianpietro has written some interesting things. Yeah. Um, that I've read, you know, that I have followed, and uh, obviously the dot dot dot. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah that's very high level. Very yeah. Difficult, yeah. dense material. Um, David Reinford. Yeah. Incredible. So that's you know younger people. Very ambitious writing. Oh, yeah. and like Manuel Lima, who writes about information design. Oh, I don't think I Oh, know well, he's fantastic. Um, I don't think of him so much as a writer, as someone who has curated and made sense mm -hmm. of oh, okay. information yeah. graphics. Oh, okay. Incredible. And he writes well, yeah. but it's about yeah. pulling together the story of the history and the future okay. of everything. Yeah, Manuel Lima. Okay. Amazing. Ellen, thank you so much um, for doing this. I'm so glad that we finally got to sit down and, and, and do this. Nice. And, and thank you. You know, I didn't want, I obviously didn't want you to be like the first person that I talked to uh, because Aww. you were also, you know, like the advisor for this project. So thank you. Um, well, it was very nice. You know, for this and then just also like thank you for, for like these last two years and for, <laughs> for help. Like your fingerprints are all over this project Aww. in different ways. That's and nice. so I think it's a better project. Uh, because of you and because I was here. So thank you so much. Thank you, it's amazing what you've done. And I know you'll do more. This episode was recorded on May 22nd, 2017 in Baltimore, Maryland. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>